morning, church. That was lackluster. Good morning, church. You got a lot uh, to um, to live up to because I was just down in Bracebridge, uh, your other site, and uh, they killed it on the response to the message this morning. <laughs> it was really good. They were. Uh, it was a lot of fun to be down there, and of course, preached there before. And first time here, it's exciting to see your new facility and all that God is doing throughout Muskoka and three campuses now, three locations, and that's just fun to see. And uh, yeah, we had uh, back in the day before uh, Harvest Muskoka launched, uh, the folks from Muskoka who were part of that core team. We're worshiping with us in Barrie and traveling down every Sunday to uh, to join us for worship. And your pastor uh, was uh, sitting with our elders in those days and uh, learning, mostly in those days, learning what not to do. And um, so uh, we're grateful for our long partnership with you and, and uh, just so blessed to be able to share God's word with you here today. All right, so we are going to be in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. And... Um, 13 to 35 is, is the uh, chunk we're going to look at, and I, I want to uh, survey you, and this is an opportunity for you right out of the gate to, uh, to do as well as Bracebridge. And I should say, before I even get into this little survey, I have preached this message out a little bit, and that's why Cheryl's probably not in the room, is because I think she's heard this uh, message about six times. Uh, it's because we've, we've uh, been around uh, Toronto and, and Markham, and so George and his family, I'm really sorry you already heard this message, brother. The Lord must want you to hear it again. That's all I got to say about that. And um, so uh, Cheryl's, Cheryl's probably just taking a break from, the, from this, but uh, let's, let's start with a little survey here. How many people would say that you are basically a facts person? You like all the facts before you make a decision. How many people are like that? Okay. How many people are more like, uh, you're more of a feelings person? You make decisions more based on feelings. That's okay. How many people never raise their hand in church no matter what? Okay. I know... I know who you are. Um, so facts, people, uh, you make decisions based on, let's say, objective evidence. You like data. You like proofs. You like to have all possible information gathering done before you're going to act in a certain direction or make a certain uh, decision. And, and so then when you have all of the data, the proofs, the facts, the information, when you have all of that, we could say that you then have certainty about a matter. That's a really important word as we uh, work through the passage. Now, but see if this isn't also true, okay? That feelings, oh, I can feel the facts people bristling right now. What's he going to say about the feelings people? For sure they don't have it right. Feelings that subjectively sensing something is true and right, feelings can also lead to certainty. The facts people are, this guy's a heretic for sure. <laughs> but, but this is my point here. We're going to miss out on an awful lot in life. We're going to miss out on an awful lot that God may wish to do if we're simply sitting here waiting for all the information to be in. If we're waiting only for the facts to be made apparent, because sometimes, listen now, sometimes we need to listen to our hearts as they, and this is a phrase from the passage, as our hearts burn within us. We need to listen to our hearts. Now, huge qualification over this. And the facts people said, amen, right? A huge qualification over this. The feeling of rightness, the feeling of rightness is never enough on its own. Feelings must be supported by the facts. And that's where we're going to uh, go uh, in today's passage. 
And, and when we think about what our world is like, we think about postmodernism, if you study such things, we, we think about relativism, and we think about where they go wrong often is on this matter of feelings leading without also having all of the facts. So feelings must also be supported by the facts. And Luke set out, in fact, to write his gospel to a man named Theophilus to bring him certainty both in a factual way, and the Gospel of Luke is a very factual, orderly account about the life of Jesus Christ. And so he set out to do that, to explain to him, chapter 1, verse 4 says, that I want you to have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And in chapter 24, Luke is actually taking his readers, taking Theophilus back to this overarching theme of certainty as he recounts this post-resurrection story. We see two disciples who did not yet have all the facts, but who had a feeling. And in fact, after they discover that the stranger they were talking to was Jesus, they actually said, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? Didn't we feel something? Even though we didn't have all the facts, didn't we feel like he was the one? That's what they were asking themselves as they reflected on this unknowing encounter with the risen Christ. And this encounter, as we study it in the scriptures today, raises a question of certainty for you and me. As you come here today, are you certain about Jesus Christ? Maybe you have some pressure that's in your life right now. Maybe you have some crushing circumstances coming at you. Maybe you have some decision that's right in front of you, and you're not sure where that's going to go. Some kind of trial or temptation is right in front of you, and you're facing it. And you're not certain if Jesus Christ is sufficient to help you with that. And the point of today's passage is to get us to that certainty. Because Jesus taught them that they could be that certain about him. This incident tells us we can be that certain about him. And that's going to have massive implications in every one of our lives. Let me read the passage. It's a lengthy passage, and then we'll begin looking at this certainty concerning Christ. So this is Luke 24, uh, verses uh, 13 through 35. That very day, um, and the day that he's speaking of is the resurrection day. It's still Sunday in the narrative. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. 
Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. All right, here's the declaration. It's an amazing story, and I get... I get kind of shivers every time I read it, just imagining what was happening with these two disciples and with Jesus. And the declaration that we want to make before we leave this place this morning, having heard his word, is about having certainty about Jesus Christ. I want to be able to say, I have certainty about Jesus Christ. I want you to be able to make the same declaration. And here's some reasons why we're going to be able to say that. Uh, From the passage, I have certainty about Jesus because, first of all, I know his presence. I know, I know he's right here with us right now. I know that he's with me. Now, I'm going to concede before we look at the verses that the verses do not tell us that these two disciples knew that they were with Jesus. In fact, just the opposite. Verse 13, they're going to a village. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're talking along the way. Verse 14, verse 15, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but they don't know it's him. Verse 16 actually tells us, but their eyes were kept from seeing him. Now, how many people really like English grammar here? Just raise your hand if you really like English grammar. You know, six or seven people, just what I would expect. So these are the grammar nerds in the crowd, right? And, And what we have here is the passive voice. In fact, we would call this a divine passive. And that is to say that the principal player in the in the sentence isn't making this happen themselves. They're not keeping themselves from seeing Jesus. Something else outside of them is keeping them from seeing that this is actually Jesus. This is a divine passage, so what, a passive. So what we know is that it's actually God, for his own reasons, that's keeping these two disciples from seeing that this is actually Jesus and recognizing him. So we could read it this way, verse 16, but their eyes were kept by God from recognizing him. But let me ask you a question. Was Jesus with them? Even though they didn't recognize him, Jesus was indeed with them, whether they knew it or not, and they didn't. He was there. And I feel like if we just pause right there for a second, just think about it, whatever you're going through right now, whatever the anxiety is that you're bearing, whatever the trial is, whatever the big decision is, whatever challenges you're facing right now, If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is with you. Amen? He's with you. Whether you recognize it fully or not, Jesus Christ is 
with you every step of the way. And I feel like just that lesson alone, if we could just understand the presence of God in our lives, if we could just understand that he's with us, that would be enough to give us all the certainty we needed, and we wouldn't need the rest of this sermon. We could get to the restaurants before the other Christians in town, right? Before Faith Baptist lets out, for sure, we could could get to the restaurants. Amen. But I have a lot more in my notes, so we're going to plow on here. The advantage that we actually have over these disciples is that we do have all the information and we understand that Jesus Christ is indeed with us. And I like what Richard Rohr said here about this. We cannot attain the presence of God. It's not something that we achieve or we grasp for ourselves. We cannot attain the presence of God. We're already totally in the presence of God. What's absent is awareness. Are you and I actually aware on a minute-by-minute basis that Jesus Christ is actually with us? And these disciples were unaware of Jesus' presence because he was keeping them from knowing it for his own reasons. But the divine passive is not being applied to us today because we have the greater knowledge. We have more information. We have this story. So we know Jesus Christ is with us. And so, listen, if we don't know, if we're not acting as if Jesus' presence is with us, it's not because of something passive that's happening to us. It's it's because of something we're doing to ourselves. If we're not aware that Jesus is walking with us, listen, hey, listen, that's on us. That's on us. So why do you think we fail to experience the presence of God? Because I think this is a thing that most of us experience at, at, at different times in our Christian life. So I made up a little list here. Maybe this is helpful. You can take some notes. We fail to experience the presence of God because of, first of all, because of distraction. We are so distracted in our lives. We have so much going on, too many things going on in our lives, too full of a calendar, the pace of our life, too crazy, messed up priorities so that God is actually shunted to the side of our lives. Now, this played off. Uh, when I preached this message down in Toronto, down in the Don Mills area, when I preached this message in Markham, and even when I preached this message in Barrie, where the pace of life is so significantly different than Muskoka, would you agree? Way different in all those areas. So you just talk about pace and distraction, and even while you're preaching, you just know that the roads outside of where you're preaching are just filling with cars on a Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon, and everyone has some place to go. It's a little different here in Muskoka, and yet we still are so very distracted, even when we come to peaceful, beautiful places like this, where the pace is different. Some of us, in fact, while we're here in these beautiful surroundings and trying to get some peace, are still thinking about what's coming next, and our calendars are full. And even when we do get a few moments to ourselves where we might be undistracted, we pull out that little device from our pockets and we fill every moment with scrolling and looking through and checking on things and playing games. We are so very distracted and our priorities are so messed up. We focus on circumstances around. We look at the actual circumstance rather than think about the God who's walking us through it. I mean, I even think about these two disciples. Again, this day that we're talking about, this account happens on Sunday of the resurrection. Jesus had just been resurrected hours before. 
But these two disciples were so caught up in their own circumstances. Think about it. As we read through the passage, the women went to the tomb. They were there when the women came back and said, the body's gone. They were there when the women said, the angels gave us a message about this and said he's risen. They heard all of that. But looked at their iPhones and looked at Google Calendar and saw that they were supposed to be in Emmaus that night. And despite all the information that was coming to them about their Lord and Savior being resurrected, they took off from Emmaus. We fail to experience the presence of God because of distraction. Our calendars are full. We think about um, our planning meeting, and I don't know if they did this here at, at, at Harvest uh, Muskoka, but we, um, we had a planning meeting in June and got all our staff together and we laid out the calendar for the next ministry year, September through, through August, and we, um, we started to lay all the ministries on there. So all the youth events and, and all the training nights and all the small groups that are going to happen and, and all, all the stuff, it all went onto the calendar. And in some churches, the, the goal is to offer as much programming and to fill up as much of the calendar as you possibly can and to make your... And we go into our June meetings with, with the exact opposite. We want to have very targeted events. We want to have a minimum number of those events. And the goal for us is to leave as much white space as possible on the calendar at the end of all of our planning. And it seems counterintuitive, but we're so busy already. We have to be very, very careful about crowding God out in the busyness, even in the midst of ministry, even in the midst of what the church is seeking to do for Christ. And so we fail to experience the presence of God because of number one, distraction. I have four of these. Here's the second one. Related to it, it's noise, more specific. It's noise. We can't tolerate Silence. We are no good at silence anymore. Now, I know the Muskoka's are Ontario's jewel. I know that. But if you go a little bit south of here and head a little bit west and you just kind of hook around Georgian Bay, you come to a lovely area called the Blue Mountains. Probably nobody from Muskoka has ever been over there. <laughs> but the Blue Mountains are beautiful. And we're about 50 minutes from uh, Collingwood, and there's a beautiful place there that my wife and I love to go to called the Scandinave Spa. How many people know about the Scandinave Spa? Okay, that's a lot of people. I don't want the rest of you to know about it, honestly. <laughs> um, you know, so, so there's a, it's a beautiful place. It's um, all these baths. Uh, by baths, I mean pools. And um, they have uh, three hot pools or hot baths uh, that are like 100 and 101, 104 degrees, and then they have three cold baths that are like 58 and 59, 60 degrees, and you take a hot bath and you jump in the cold bath. It's wonderful. Then they have a couple of saunas, and uh, one's infrared, one more traditional. They have the eucalyptus steam room, which is my favorite. The eucalyptus steam room, when you open the door, all you see is steam. You don't see where you're going to sit or the people that might be sitting where you want to sit. So that can be awkward. So you got to pause. You got to, that's really awkward. And, um, and, and, but, but the eucalyptus just, it just cleans everything out. It's just amazing. And then they have quiet rooms where you can go and they have Muskoka chairs set up and you can go in and read or you can go and nap and in, in the nicer weather, there's hammocks set up outside, and you can go and you can sleep on a hammock, or you can read, and in the, um, in the season that shall not be named, um, 
when the white precipitation is falling, it's lovely to go there, and they have fires set up, and you can sit outside around a Muskoka chair around the fires. And it's just a beautiful, awesome place, and love to go there. And they only have one rule. Quiet. Just, you just got to be quiet. In fact, around there, they have signs that literally just say, quiet, please. And um, when you step out of the change area and into the bath area, there's no more talking. In fact, when you pay to go to the, the uh, spa and you're, you're, you have to sign a waiver, and on the waiver it says, no talking. So every single person signs a waiver that says they won't talk. People lie. <laughs> People lie. And, and so they get down there, and they're with their friends, because you want to take somebody with you when you go. And they get down there, and they sit in the bath, and they, they think they're at Tim Hortons, and they're just like chatting it up in the baths. And I'm there to Sabbath. I go with my wife, and my life is obviously busy as a pastor. And, and so when I go, I'm really going to Sabbath. I'm going to rest. I, I want to shut it all down. I don't want to hear conversations. I don't want to have a conversation. I just want to go and be super quiet. And, and, I, and I can find that spiritually refreshing, except when people near me talk, and then I get super carnal, and I start to think about how easy it would be with all the water there. <laughs> How long do you think it would take to, if you held them? You know, I'm just, I'm, I mean, I'm, just, I'm just being vulnerable for a minute here with you. All that to say, uh, we don't like silence. How many of us come home and the first thing we do when we come into the house is we turn the TV on because we just want some ambient noise? We're not watching anything, we just turn it on. How many of us, when we get into our car, the first thing we do is we turn the radio on and it's, we got the top 40 station on or we, we got, you know, got to listen to the moose or we got to, or we got to, or we're listening to talk radio. I got to hear guys just jabbering on about nothing concerning sports for hours and hours on end while I drive. We don't, we don't like quiet anymore. When, I, when we go for a walk and we're in a really peaceful place and, and we're, but we got to have the earbuds in and listen to a podcast or listen to Spotify. We just don't like quiet, or, or, or if you're with a group of people, you're with your small group, you're with your family, you're with some friends, and you've talked about a bunch of things, and all of a sudden, then you just get to that awkward silence, right? Who decided it was awkward, right? And so you sit there in silence, and, and literally, those awkward silences only ever last a few seconds before the person who feels like it's the most awkward, okay, the person who's most, you know, uh, put out by it, they start talking, though they have nothing to say. They just want to fill the silence. If there's always noise around you, it can make it awfully difficult to hear the voice of God and to know his presence. That's the point of all of that. Here's a third one and a fourth one really quickly. Uh, distraction, noise, and then self-centeredness just so focused on your own needs and your own wants, so enamored by the sound of your own voice, you just can't hear from the God who's with you. And people-pleasing, so busy listening to what others are saying, so busy trying to make the people around you happy uh, that you can't hear what God is saying and you don't know His presence. You're just so concerned with the presence of people around you. And all of these are a warning to us to slow this all down, to quiet ourselves, and to know the presence of God.
Here's another one. I should also have certainty about Jesus because I remember his mission. If I were to ask you the question, why did Jesus come to earth, a majority of Christians would answer the question with uh, something like, uh, he came to give his life on the cross, to die as our substitute on the cross, to give us uh, the opportunity to have our sins forgiven and to enter into the kingdom of God. We would answer the question around that way. When Jesus was answering that particular question, his number one response to that was always, and an example of this is in Luke 4.43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus answered the question about his mission by saying, I came to preach. I came to proclaim a certain message. Now, for sure, his death on the cross was part and parcel of the gospel message that was being proclaimed. But the preaching was the purpose that he always stated. His mission was to bring the kingdom of God to earth and to offer it to us. And, and when we get out of sync... When we get to times when we need to recalibrate to understand the certainty of God, just reminding ourselves again of the mission of Christ can be so helpful in that refocusing and that recalibration. So Jesus comes up, back to our narrative here, Jesus comes up alongside these two disciples on his walk to Emmaus, verse 17, and essentially asks them, he said, what are you guys talking about? And when he asked them the question, because they, he must have overheard something of what they were saying, they stopped dead in their tracks and turned to him. And the text tells us, verse 17, just looking sad. So grieving, so gripped by their own circumstances. And that's a situation that any one of us can get in that, that probably some in this room are facing right now. You're grieving, you're sad, you're burdened down. There's a lot going on in your life and, and just having any sense of joy in your life seems like an impossibility. And I know something about this. I can speak personally to this about being in a tough place, about being anxious concerning circumstances in my own life, of not knowing how things are going to turn out because of what's going on in my life. I know how that kind of circumstance, living that kind of day-to-day -day existence, affects every other relationship I have and everything I do and decide. I know how it affects my marriage to Cheryl. I know how it affects my kids, my parenting, being a good dad and grandpa. I know how it affects my working relationships. I know how it affects my friendships. I know how I have a desire to just even close in and, and, and pull the drapes and lock the door. I know all of that. I know how it affects my own well-being. And I know many of you experience and know the same thing. So these two disciples, this is exactly the situation they're in. Verse 18, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple are in this situation. They're anxious about what verse 14 said, these things that have happened, everything that happened in, in Jerusalem in the past several days. They have no idea how it's all going to turn out because they think that Jesus is dead. They think that he's like dead, dead, not coming back to life again. They think the mission is over. They think all the hopes and dreams they have is all come crashing down. And they're sad about it. And in fact, they're having this conversation with one another to work it out. It's kind of like group therapy on the way to Emmaus. They're talking it all out to see if they can make any sense at all of what's happened to them. It's affecting everything. It's consuming them. 
And in fact, so much so that verse 18, Cleopas can't even believe that anyone doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem in those days. How could you not know what happened in Jerusalem? You just came from there. Now, Jesus is he's playing with them a little bit in this passage, right? Because he knows everything. He knows what's going on. But look what he says here. He says it in verse 19. What things? I mean, Jesus wasn't just in Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't just aware of what went on in Jerusalem. These things all happened to him, but he's saying back to them this question, what things? Because he wants them to rehearse the mission back to him. He wants the words to come from their mouth. He could tell them everything, but he wants them to remember it all. He wants them to say it. So verse 19, they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, and he's going he's gonna to tell them, he's going to tell this stranger, Jesus, he's going to tell them three things that they know. A man who is a prophet, that's who he is. Mighty indeed, that's what he did. And word, what he said and what he taught. A man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, before God and all the people. And then they went on to tell the events of the last several days. Verse 20, betrayed, he was betrayed, condemned, and crucified. And then, this is so sad, how crushed they were about it. Verse 21, but we had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And evidently he wasn't. They go on to say, because now it's the third day. There's irony in the fact that they mention that. It's the third. He's been dead for three days. He ain't coming back. In other words, what they're saying is that all the facts are in. And as we evaluate all the facts, it's all over. And they recounted the events of Sunday morning, in fact, how, verse 22, the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. Verse 23, when they did not find his body. You'd think they would have known at this point. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had even seen a vision of angels. Can you believe that? How crazy is that? They don't believe this. These angels apparently said that he was alive. Of course they did. In verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb. They evidently did not go. Cleopas and his other disciple did not go. But some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Some of the facts are beginning to roll in, and yet they still won't believe. Poor Cleopas and this unnamed disciple, despite this evidence, still can't bring them to the place, bring themselves to the place of believing. And did I mention not only did they not believe, they left town. So gripped by their own despair, they left town. And as believers, we can get ourselves into similar situations, despite all the evidence of Christ in us. Despite the fact that he saved us and forgave our sins in the first place. Despite what God is doing around us. Despite what God might be doing through us. Despite what we might see God is doing in the lives of others. We can lose sight of him. 
And what can help in times like this is going back to rehearse the core things we believe about him and about his mission. Because the only thing that matters is Jesus' mission to redeem this world. And inasmuch as Jesus Christ said that my mission is to preach the kingdom of God, when he completed that mission, and, uh, and upon his ascension to glory, he took that mission to proclaim, and he handed that to us. He said, now this is your job. I want you to go into the world. I want you to preach this message of the kingdom of God. I want you to tell people about me. I want you to help them become disciples of Christ. I want you to teach them. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That now becomes our mission. And again, as we get off off the base a little bit, as we lose sight of God's presence and power to pull ourselves back to this mission again, is critical in reinforcing our certainty about him. All that matters, listen now, all that matters is the mission. And absolutely everything else in our lives are mere details. If you are married, that is a mere detail. If you are not married, it is a mere detail. If you have children or do not have children, those are mere details. If you are wealthy or you are poor, it is merely a detail of your life. But it is unimportant with respect to the mission. If you are healthy or you are infirmed, it is a mere detail of your life. But both the healthy and the affirmed can fulfill the mission. Everything that is a detail in our life, has no impact whatsoever on fulfilling the mission that Jesus Christ has given to us in this world. Those circumstances, in fact, whatever they happen to be, those circumstances could very well be the thing that God wants to use to help you in a very specific way fulfill the mission that he's given to you to do. And so we're going back to review who Jesus is and what Jesus taught and what Jesus did. And in fact, we're asking ourselves the same question now, having been given the mission. Who am I? What should I be doing? What should I be proclaiming? And when we have that locked in, that's going to help us with our certainty. Now, something's going to help me in that, and that is to hear his word. See this next. I hear his word. Now, Cleopas and the other guy had Jesus right there to explain things to them. And um, a little rebuke comes here. Jesus says to them, now imagine this, they don't know it's Jesus. They just think it's some stranger that's walking along the road with them. So they're, in essence, just beginning to make some kind of a relationship with one another. And this is what Jesus, this stranger, says to them. This is, I would just say, this is not a way to make friends. Because Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Jesus essentially says to these people, thick-headed, you're thick-headed, why don't you believe what the Bible says? You're sad and you're confused because you forgot, ignored, or did not listen to the Word of God. They've just met. I mean, according to these two guys, they've just met. So this is a pretty bold statement, and, and, but Jesus gets the ability to say this as he's bringing them through this process of understanding who he is. And I would just say this because, um, you know, in a short time, I'm going to leave town. And I'm, I'm going to head back down Highway 11 to, uh, to Barry. And, um, but I'll say this on behalf of your pastor that, um, and, and uh, a lot of pastors, 
teaching pastors would love to be able to say this to people in their church, but won't. Won't, won't say, oh, you're a foolish one. You're slow of heart to believe everything that the Bible teaches. But the reality is that as pastors, and, and I can say this and maybe Kai couldn't, the reality is that we can teach week after week, and some of you sit here every single Sunday and you soak it all in, and you have the Bible open in front of you, and you're going to small groups and studying it again, and the Word of God just coming in and coming in, coming in, and then, and then you'll send an email or you'll make a phone call or you'll do something that's completely boneheaded and not according to anything that you've heard from the teaching, and the thing your pastor wants to say to you is, but won't because Kai's got like a big heart and loves you so much and wouldn't say things like this, but I can say it for him. Sometimes he wants to say to you, oh, foolish ones, oh, foolish ones, you're so slow of heart to believe. I taught you that last Sunday. That's what he really wants to say. We studied that back in this series. Don't you remember this teaching? I laid this all out for you, and here you are messing up your marriage and messing up your parenting and spending money you don't have. That was free, Kai. It wasn't even in the notes. <laughs> so then Jesus shoots them a leading question in verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? He doesn't wait for the answer. There's only one possible answer. It's yes, it was necessary. We forgot, I guess, that you taught us that. And then verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, so Jesus takes them to the Hebrew Bible, what they, would, what they would know to be the scriptures, and he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I wonder, you know, did he take them to, to, to Genesis 3.15, the first mention of the gospel, the first promise of a Messiah? Did he, did he take them to Psalm 2, which is messianic in focus? Did he take them to the suffering servant, a section of Isaiah 53? And did, did he point to Jesus over and over? Did he point to the Messiah coming over and over again in any of the dozens and dozens of Old Testament prophecies that point to him? See, it's not an unusual thing. Jesus takes them to the scriptures. This is not an unusual thing, and it's the very thing we should be doing. It is not an unusual thing what we are doing here this morning. This needs to be the regular pattern of our life, and, and praise God that you're here today. But this needs to be the regular pattern of our lives, getting together to hear the Word of God together and pressing into what God has to say to us and then rehearsing and reviewing that for ourselves through the week. The world may think this is unusual, but all around the world today, in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of gatherings, God's people will get together to hear the word of God. And we do it because, the preacher in Hebrew says this, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We have to listen to the preaching and to the teaching. Why? Lest we drift away from it. Lest we leave town in the spiritual sense of that. Lest we forget about the presence of God. Lest we forget about the power of God. Lest we lose our certainty about Jesus Christ. We will drift from this if we do not give our attention to God's word. J.C. Ryle said this, ignorance of scripture. Ignorance of scripture is the root of every error in religion and the source of every heresy. It's not reading and studying the Bible. And when we ignore Scripture, when we forget it, we leave ourselves vulnerable. 
Now, Ryle was probably thinking of the grand heresies of history, the deity of Christ, the inspiration of Scripture, the nature of God. And people abandoned the essential doctrines of the faith in favor of error. But we tell ourselves all kinds of, I don't think that's what's at stake here, but I think we tell ourselves all kinds of personal heresies. In the midst of difficult circumstances, we tell ourselves, why why is God allowing this to happen to me? Doesn't He know how faithful I am to Him? I feel like God owes me. I feel like I've I've given so much to God, and, and why is He allowing this happen in my life? Those are heresies. That is false teaching that we tell ourselves because we have not given the attention to God's word that we ought to. Don't be foolish. Don't be slow of heart to believe. Be serious about your study of God's word. And as you do, you'll find your certainty about him increasing. All right, a couple more. I should also have certainty about Jesus because I experience his power. Verse 28, they're approaching Emmaus, and Jesus, again, he plays with them a little bit, and he feigns that he's going to go further as a bit of a test to see if they were really listening to what he said because they didn't really have a great track record of listening to what he said. And they passed the test here. Verse 29, they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. It's getting late. It's late in the day. It's almost night. Don't travel at night. And Jesus went in to stay with them, and they sat down to eat. Now, they're going to eat a meal together. Now, remember the events of just the last few days. This is Sunday, now toward evening, Resurrection Sunday, but they don't fully realize this yet. Saturday was just kind of a quiet day. Friday was the crucifixion. And on Thursday night, just a few days before, the 11 had gathered together, and the Passover, they had gathered to eat the Passover, but Jesus had transformed the Passover into what we call the Lord's Table or Communion. Now, it's possible that the one unnamed disciple was part of the 11 and was actually in the room at the time, but for sure, once the 11 came out of there, they told all the other disciples what happened in the upper room, and and they understood what had happened on that night. And so, as they sat down, verse 30 says, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and, 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 and blessed it and broke it. So, now you're seeing the same pattern as happened on that Thursday night. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to these two disciples, and, and bam, verse 31, bam, their eyes were opened, and they recognized, and they knew it was Jesus. Just in sharing the table, something that points to the oneness that we have in Christ, in sharing the table, they knew that it was Jesus, and they received the certainty that they needed. And once they had that, once they had that certainty, look what happens in verse 31, it seems so unfair. It's just so unfair. He vanished from their sight. I mean, they just finally get it. And then I'm thinking, like, once they got it, they have so many questions and so many more things that they want to talk about, and Jesus just vanishes before their eyes. I suspect because he had accomplished what he set out to do in that particular instance. And verse 32, this is where they say it. Facts and feelings come together. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? Didn't we just have a feeling that it was him? Did you feel that? Did you sense it? I kind of kept saying to myself every time, I think this is Jesus. It just sounds so much like Jesus. We felt his presence. We felt his power. Now, we're not likely, you and I, to have an encounter like that one that's a pretty specialized 
a situation, but um, would you agree with me that God is no less powerful today? Do you agree with that? He's no less interested in seeing lives transformed. He's no less interested in seeing sins forgiven. He wants to bring about the great reversal in people's lives. We have seen how God has worked to save us and to restore what has been broken. And, and if you're not seeing any of these things in your life and in the lives of others, perhaps it's because you're not in the right place. You're not where you ought to be. Maybe you're not engaged in the lives of those who are pressing into the Lord for more of his presence and power. Maybe you're not praying for that kind of work of the Holy Spirit to happen in and around you and through you. Because when you see that happening, it's going to confirm what we've read in the Word and it's going to give us certainty about Jesus Christ. One more and relate it closely to that one. I see his work. Verse 33 tells us what they did next. They went back to Jerusalem right away. Again, pretty unusual because this is now evening and you just didn't travel at night. But they went back immediately to the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. That's verse 33. Verse 34, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, once they get there, this is what they hear. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. He showed up. Peter saw him. So since you've been gone on your little trip to Emmaus and back, a lot's been happening here in Jerusalem, and we've confirmed that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. And then, verse 35, then Cleopas and the unnamed disciple told what happened to them on the road. You can't believe what happened to us. And so as all these disciples now, each telling their encounter with Jesus and all of them sharing their story and their testimony of how God was working. And so the certainty of all of this is being confirmed by the testimony of many. I don't think we should discount how powerful our own stories are. To encourage fellow believers, to let them know about the power of God and how he's working. And then to even appeal to those who are not yet believers to give their life to Christ. It was actually 40 years ago last month that I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I was raised an Anglican kid in Montreal, so I had an awareness of God. I even had um, a desire for God. A God awareness, I would, I would call it at the time. And, and yet, I never heard the gospel in the Anglican churches that I attended. It was all very religious and ritual for me. But then we moved from Montreal. We came to Ontario. And when we got here, there was just a series of trials that our family went through and that I went through personally. I was 13 at the time. And all of those crises led our family to investigate the gospel and to try and seek for some help through it all. And my mom went back to some family history, and we ended up at the Salvation Army Church. And it was in a basement, um, dark room, candlelit, coffeehouse atmosphere at a youth event on a Friday night that a speaker spoke and said that Jesus Christ is the only one who can fill the void that's in your life. It was one of those moments where I felt like even though the room was filled with young people, I just felt like I was the only one in the room and he was speaking directly to me. Because I had that emptiness, I had that void, I had a God consciousness, but I didn't yet have Jesus Christ in my life. I remember raising my hand, and in that moment, though, I didn't know all the facts about salvation. I knew how I felt, and I raised my hand, and in that moment, I tangibly felt the Holy Spirit come upon me, and I felt his salvation go through me, and Jesus Christ forgave my sins, and he filled the emptiness 40 years ago. 
I've always had, of course, I spent the first six years of my walk with Christ in the Salvation Army, and I've always felt this great affinity. And the Salvation Army, at least at one point in their history, was very big on testimony and people telling their story of how God had worked in their lives. In the early days, in fact, the founder of the Salvation Army, his name was William Booth, and he was conducting meetings over in England in Whitechapel with a congregation, 1,200 people had gathered to hear him preach. And normally, uh, as the story goes here, his speaking was dynamic. He could hold a crowd spellbound, but on this night, a number of godless people, or the number of godless people was higher than usual, and some were quite uh, violent, being violent and making a real nuisance, and he was making no impression on this crowd of 1,200 people. Among his supporters there was a, um, and I'm sure that this is a politically incorrect phrase now, but in the story, in the crowd was a gypsy hawker. Uh, this is a, a, a traveling salesman who was uh, uh, not honest in his dealings. And he had been converted a few weeks earlier, and he called, uh, Booth called him to the platform to tell of his changed life and what Christ has done, had done in his life. As soon as the gypsy hawker started to talk, a silence fell over the hall, for this man had been known for his wayward living. His words were bungling. But they rang true, and the attention of the crowd was recaptured. Booth later said to his son, Willie, I shall have to burn all those old sermons of mine and go in for the gypsies. From then on, he encouraged more testimony in his meetings, believing that ordinary working men in their corduroys and bowler hats could command attention from their own class, which refused point blank to me with my theological terms and superior knowledge. The work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of ordinary people is a powerful means of seeing God at work and of reinforcing our certainty of who Jesus Christ is, of what He said, and how He's working in the world today. And I would hope that every single person in this room would have that certainty about Christ. Let me pray for us. God and Father, it's a, a wonderful privilege to have been here and, and to be able to open God's Word, not something that I take for granted, but something I appreciate greatly. And I'm super thankful, Father, for those in the room who have just been leaning in to your Word and, and listening in these moments. And uh, Father, I, I don't know the makeup of this room. I don't know how many in this room might not yet know Jesus. And I, I pray that in the preaching of your word, not the preaching so much as in your word itself and in the work of the Holy Spirit. There would be some in this room who don't know you who would be drawn to you right now. Father, in a sense, that they would be lifting their hand and, and feeling the Holy Spirit come upon them as their sins are cleansed from them. And they would be saved. But Father, for those of us in the room who are believers, there's no doubt that the weight of this world and the circumstances of life can take their toll. Father, that it, be, it can become so easy to become uncertain about Jesus and his sufficiency for us. So God, I pray again that your word would hit the mark, that your Holy Spirit would work, that everyone in this room would walk away with a great certainty about Jesus Christ, and that this world, in the face of him, fade away. God, I thank you for this body of believers. I thank you for all that you're doing in Muskoka through Harvest. I pray your blessing on this church in Jesus' name.